Good afternoon. My name is Giselle, and I am a white collar defense and government investigations partner at Foley Hoag, and I also serve as co-chair of the white collar section of the Boston Bar Association. First, just hoping that each and every one of you is healthy and safe, and that your families are doing well. Part of what's prompting this very webinar is the fact that we are now all facing the challenges of the COVID-19 crisis. And considering that as white collar defense attorneys, we are faced with the question of whether we should be moving for the pretrial or compassionate release of a number of our clients. Today's webinar will address the issues of pretrial and compassionate release. And we're excited to have a really great panel today. To introduce them, I'll, I'll go sort of in order of the grid here. We have um, Sandra Gantz, Sandy, from the Federal Public Defender's Office. She is early in her tenure at the Federal Public Defender's Office, having joined just months ago, and is very involved in the COVID-19 response there, including pre-screening procedures with respect to pretrial or compassionate release motions. Prior to uh, the Federal Public Defender's Office, Sandy worked with CPCS. Welcome, Sandy. Thank you for, for being here today. We also have um, Zach Hafer. He is the Chief of the Criminal Division at the U.S. Attorney's Office here in Boston. He has worked at the office for 13 years and has a wide breadth of experience um, across departments, having done work in public corruption and narcotics, and now obviously leading the entire criminal division at what is an unprecedented time. So thank you for taking the time to, to be with us, Zach. We thought it was very important to have the government perspective on these issues. We also have uh, two white collar defense attorneys. They're both former AUSAs having spent time here at the Boston U.S. Attorney's Office. And we invited Greg Noonan and Seth Orkin with the hope that they can bring some narratives um, to us today. Tell us about particular cases that they're working on with respect to pretrial and compassionate release. So Greg is a partner at Hogan Levels. Prior to that, he was also at the Boston U.S. Attorney's Office doing healthcare fraud. And before that, he was in San Diego on the West Coast at the U.S. Attorney's Office there doing general crimes work. So welcome, Greg. Thanks. And Seth uh, Orkind, uh, we actually shared some time together at the Boston U.S. Attorney's Office. He's now a partner at a minor Orkin in Siddle and where he focuses on white collar criminal defense and his participation today. I'll also highlight that he does um, a lot of Title IX work. There's another BBA webinar I think floating out there relating to Title IX that's uh, relevant to Seth. So thank you, Seth, for, for joining and being an active participant in this section. Thanks, Giselle. So I think that um, we'll probably just jump right in with questions. Um, we are hoping to chat for about 40 minutes and then to open up for questions. To the extent you have questions as we go along, definitely enter them into the Q&A section here below and we'll get to them about hopefully about 40 minutes in. Zach, I thought it'd be great um, just to start with you and ask you to describe sitting in your position as chief. How have you responded to 
COVID-19 with respect to their approach to pretrial and compassionate release. Thanks, Giselle. Um, yes, I'll just give a uh, hopefully brief overview of what we've done um, and, and then morph into uh, the types of factors and considerations going into how we're evaluating uh, the motions for compassionate release or for pretrial release. Uh, at the at very outset of this process, um, our office recognized we needed to be uniform as much as possible and have standards that we could apply across the office. So um, I sort of uh, took, took on the role of coordinating uh, our office's position responses on all of these. And so what that involved at the very beginning was in the first instance, Miriam Conrad um, and Jessica Hedges on behalf of the CJA panel identified a list of uh, inmates that they deemed to be the highest priority or highest risk. This was in uh, within a week or two at the most of everything closing down. And um, Miriam then provided that list to me um, it, and I worked closely with each of the AUSAs figuring out, all right, can we agree this was pre-trial, just to be clear, this is in the first instance, this was pre-trial. Um, can we agree on a certain amount of these and avoid litigation? And uh, ideally there should be some type of meeting of the minds. And then I did the same thing with Jessica. Um, we did that very, very quickly um, in, in terms of probably in a matter of days reviewing close to 75 or 80 cases in the first instance. And I would say that um, the, we ultimately agreed uh, on some type of relief, whether it was outright release or an expedited plea to a sentence of time served, which is much lower than we would have normally recommended, uh, in, in between 20 to 30% of the cases that were presented by Miriam and Jessica. Um, and I think, and we were working throughout that process very closely with probation um, one of the issues that was identified very early for pretrial releasees was the burden, some of the same fears that were animating the judges and the defense bar and prosecutors about contact and fear of contracting COVID were animating, obviously, the probation department, too. And they made clear to us they didn't want us to just take it a position, sure, release is fine as long as there's electronic monitoring. Um, uh, because that was something both from a resource and safety perspective they were concerned about. So very early on, there was an extraordinary amount of coordination between Miriam, Jessica, and our office to at least identify those we could agree on. Um, and, and that ultimately, I think, uh, for the folks that were the most vulnerable, um, was a good thing. Uh, and then the litigation ensued uh, for those that we didn't, we didn't agree on. Um, that then morphed into a very similar process um, in the context of defendants either already serving BOP sentences, so fully eligible for compassionate release, or the universe of defendants in between uh, plea and sentence, uh, who, who weren't being held pretrial, but also weren't yet necessarily in BOP custody. Um, we continue to resolve some of those um, more quickly than we would have normally, agreeing in, in many cases to expedited sentencings uh, and some of those agreeing to time served and others certainly, um, if we didn't get the time served, giving the defense the opportunity to argue for time served. So that was sort of the process. Um, uh, 
we, what, one thing I wanted to make sure it didn't happen in our office is we had similarly situated defendants um, being treated differently across the office. I thought it was very important to have uniform standards, you know, so a 70 year old white collar defendant in uh, with uh, immunocompromised defendant uh, in, in one case was treated the same as, as another, as much as possible. Obviously, these are very individualized case-by-case -case determinations, but we wanted to have some broad standards. So that sort of, that was the how, that was how we did it. Um, and we continue to have that dialogue. We continue to push out our own internal guidance and guidance that we're getting uh, from Washington on these. Right. So that's, that's helpful, and I appreciate that consistency um, seems like it's a, it continues to be a main goal for you. How about um, defendants with private attorneys? Are attorneys approaching the office on a case-by-case -case basis and are there discussions around where their clients fit into your framework? Yes, very much so. Um, uh, the, but what uh, the, the protocols that we sort of developed with Miriam and Jessica have, have um, now apply more broadly to across the office. So the short answer to your question is yes, AUSAs are, uh, have been instructed to consider the same factors in the same way um, with any private attorney. So we're receiving these. I am requiring, um, in order to assure some level of consistency, um, approval to agree to release in any particular case still has to come through me. Um, that way, again, um, or, you know, again, my, my general philosophy is to, to push as much discretion back down to the line as possible. But on something like this, um, I'm, still, I'm still requiring uh, AUSAs to go to their chief to come to me for approval on these. But yes, we, we are, by far and away, this is taking the, the most time in the criminal division right now is uh, negotiating these, discussing these, responding to these, opposing these where, where we need to oppose them. That's helpful. You started off by saying like you had a, a sample of people in prison who were at most risk. And I just want to focus on that, that word risk. Um, what is the risk uh, of being in prison right now? What's focusing on the federal prisons and, and BOP's phase plan? And just to make the, the question a little more specific, I noticed in the college admissions case in response to a motion that the office took the position that BOP has an effective phased plan and walked through the different phases. And uh, the position was essentially, there's a good plan in place and to the extent possible risk is being managed. So for those of us who aren't as close to what's actually happening in the prisons, um, what is the office's view on what's being done, what's coming, and just what, what is the state of affairs? Yes, I would say uh, in general that uh, the Bureau of Prisons is doing a very good job uh, at uh, being particularly mindful of inmates who are vulnerable and the larger inmate community. There are BOP facilities that have had um, more significant outbreaks uh, than others. Um, we are sort of getting daily updates from the Bureau of Prisons uh, regarding uh, each facility, facilities across the country. That's a part of the um, calculus for us as to what position to take. Although I, I would say that um, 
I've been fairly clear with AUSAs that um, while it's something perhaps that's relevant to the determination whether to oppose compassionate release, that um, it's not it's it's not the be all end all. It just you know you hear for example, oh, there's been an outbreak at Wyatt. Um, our, our view of that is that's we, we need to look at that. We need to understand that, but that doesn't equal uh, compassionate release for every DMAS federal detainee at Wyatt. Um, it's, it's part of the calculus. Um, but to answer your more specific question, we are being, paying very, very close attention. Uh, I am in contact with my counterpart at the Bureau of Prisons, which is the regional council for the entire uh, Northeast region um, on an almost daily basis about the types of things they're doing. And then obviously they've instituted this uh, home confinement program where they have complete, uh, separate and apart from compassionate release, the Bureau of Prisons is under, uh, we call it the bar memo, internally is under orders from Attorney General Barr to sort of thin their own ranks um, substantially uh, in order to allow you know, more social distancing and protect amongst the most vulnerable inmates. So that, that process is very much ongoing and um, something that I know the Bureau of Prisons is spending a great deal of time on reviewing internally uh, at each facility, the candidates that they view as sort of most uh, worthy of release to home confinement. Um, that's a program over which we have no control. We could call and tell them we don't want someone to get out and they have complete autonomy and discretion. This is sort of separate and apart from the compassionate release process. So they're doing that um, in addition to all the enhanced steps they're taking. I'm sure many members of the white collar bar who are on the phone have seen some of the affidavit and, and obviously Sandy have seen some of the affidavits that we filed with from the warden at Wyatt, from the sheriff in Plymouth County talking about the enhanced sanitation procedures and the isolation within certain pods when there is a positive test. And, and so um, while obviously nothing's perfect, it, generally I think for most of the facilities that we're dealing with here, uh, the, the wardens, sheriffs, uh, BOP um, leadership has been very responsive and responsible about the conditions in the prisons. Great, that's helpful. So shifting gears a little bit, and I think this question is, is most um, applicable to you, Zach, as a representative of the government. Over the weekend uh, here in Boston, most people are probably aware of this, there was a shooting in South Boston, and the Boston Police Commissioner um, came out, publicly told, yeah, look, we, you know, I, he's against um, in response to um, it wasn't clear whether the particular incident involved someone who was released uh, because of COVID-19, the uh, alleged perpetrator was recently released though. And the Boston Police Commissioner's position was this release because of COVID-19 is setting the wrong, I think mentality is the word that he used. So obviously as a, a representative of the government, Zach, you face this balancing act of safety of the community um, and as compared to you know, safety of those who are actually in prison and that's that impact on the overall safety of the community. So how would you say that you are balancing those interests? Yeah, that's the, you put your finger on the, the, the tension in all of these, but I, I would say we are, we, uh, 
we are erring on the side of public safety. Uh, so I don't believe we've agreed, um, even if someone checks some of this, and we're looking very close. I should, if you don't mind, just let me just back up and answer that with a little bit of context as to how we evaluate these more specifically. Perfect, um, that'll be helpful. So the, the CDC has published a list of risk factors on their website. We've become very, very familiar with those where we're aware of them. Moderate to severe asthma, chronic kidney disease, uh, not well-controlled type 1 and type 2 diabetes, any type of immunocompromised condition resulting from cancer treatments, liver disease, cirrhosis. So I think there's nine or 10 specific CDC risk factors uh, that we look very, very closely at for people who are particular, who are going to be particularly vulnerable to the effects of COVID if they contract it in light of those risk factors. Um, those are critical. Uh, it really is a case-by-case -case basis. Um, that said, um, even if somebody checks one or two of those CDC boxes, um, if they are in for a violent offense, uh, we are not going to agree to release absent some type of extraordinary equity that I can't envision right now. I mean, you never say never, but um, the, I don't believe on any of the ones we've agreed on. They've been for violent offenses or offenses with child victims or uh, sexually aggressive behavior. Um, so in terms of the balance, um, while we've become very fluent in these CDC factors, at the end of the day, our, our obligation is still to protect the public safety. And so defendants with a particular uh, history of violence, in for a violent offense, in for a sexual exploitation of a minor offense, um, we are not gonna get to release when we balance all of the competing uh, factors for those types of defense. Very, very much matters what the offense is. If you looked at the universe of cases in which we've agreed, and there have been there have been more in which judges have released over our objection. Um, there's very very few for violent, if any, for where the underlying offense could be classified as violent, or the defendant has a history of violence. Um, and similar to that, the um, and this is something that I think could be useful to those of you litigating these for the defense. Um, even if someone checks one of the boxes even if they're in for a, what I would call a nonviolent sort of white collar offense, even if they've served, um, well, in the pretrial context, this is in the pretrial context, uh, the release plan is really key. Um, we, you know, in order to get us to a point where we're gonna agree, you know, there needs to be a, there needs to be a release plan. Um, so with respect to the Commissioner Grass and, and the murder you, or alleged murder that you refer to, that's, that's something we would look at very closely here. What's this defendant's history? Um, and we will continue just to, just to be very clear, uh, the Department of Justice does not view a generalized fear that you may contract COVID uh, in the context of compassionate release as extraordinary and compelling um, as in the context of pretrial as something justifying extraordinary circumstances to rewarrant a determination of, of danger to the community. So we're we're not going to ever agree where it's just a generalized fear, but the ultimate answer to your question is nature and characteristics of the offense, defendant's history, uh, very, very mindful of the public safety. And, and it is a balancing test. And there's going to be times where uh, the defense bar uh, writ large disagrees with the calls we're making and the judges disagree with the calls we're making, but that's, that's how we're doing it. Great. Thank you. Very helpful.
I want to bring um, Sandy in now. Sandy, you have a, a different view. And I want to pose a, a similar well question to you about BOP because you're hearing from clients. I imagine you're part of the pre-screening process. So you're hearing from them directly and they are living this experience. So based on what you know in your perspective, uh, are the safe right now and is BOP doing enough? It's a very difficult question to answer because there are so many different BOP facilities in addition to the private prisons. Um, and there's been an incredible amount of difficulty in gathering even just anecdotal data from clients in different facilities. Um, so I don't think that, that, that any of us can give a, a, a true overall view or assessment of what the BOP is doing in each facility and whether it's sufficient to protect prisoners writ large. Um, that said, I think the general concerns about being in prison in this, you know, age of a pandemic um, apply to prisoners everywhere, not just in the BOP, um, but also people who are held pretrial in state facilities, etc. There's the inability of prisoners to socially distance, which is something that we're all doing, obviously, by virtue of having a remote webinar series. Um, there is a lack of or insufficient uh, protective measures, protective gear. I mean, we're talking about prisoners who are given one single-use temporary face mask to last them weeks or months. Um, some have no gloves. Some have a complete inability to engage in any kind of the recommended or instituted protocols that we adhere to every day. The um, there are specific facilities who have been called out in class actions for their inability to identify high-risk prisoners or their in inadequate treatment of high-risk prisoners. Um, I think generally there are poor and inadequate screening measures. There's largely just temperature taking. Um, and given the risk of asymptomatic transmission, it's insufficient. And it poses the risk, I think, of creating the idea that they are protecting prisoners when indeed they may just be uh, contributing to the spread of COVID-19 in prisons. There's also the lack of testing of prisoners except for the most symptomatic or severe cases. And that may just be because there's a lack of available testing across the country. Um, and I think in recent litigation out of MDC Brooklyn, there were, there were only maybe two dozen tests for the entire population, which is completely insane to think about. Um, overall, I think there's a general lack of transparency and conflicting numbers. The BOP does maintain a website where they provide information breakdowns by facility. Inmates who have tested positive, staff who have tested positive, and then those who have recovered in, in both categories. The numbers fluctuate, obviously, because somebody who's tested positive can flip into the recovered category. But we don't know how many people are being tested in each facility. We don't know which units necessarily they're confined to. We don't know whether or not what the criteria is for the testing. Um, in many facilities, people are isolated and quarantined together before they've been diagnosed with COVID-19. So the risk of transmission from infected prisoners to suspected cases of COVID-19 is also pretty high. Then there's the concern, I think, generally um, one of the concerns for compassionate release, for example, prior to COVID-19 is whether or not an individual can maintain self-care in a, in a prison facility. And I think COVID-19 has changed that calculus. Obviously, there are, I don't know of 
um, many BOP facilities, if any, that have adequate care to deal with specifically high-risk cases that require ventilators. Most of the BOP prisoners who have died from COVID-19 have done so in hospitals. Um, and that may demonstrate that those cases are being sent out to hospitals, but without a complete transparent communication about what's happening in BOP facilities, we just don't know. And I think that's the scary thing. that I can't give a full answer as to what the BOP is doing and whether or not it's keeping people safe. But what we do know is that the BOP facilities, specific ones, MDC Brooklyn, Lompoc, Danbury, Elkton, um, and even, although not a BOP facility, it houses ICE detainees and federal marshal detainees, Stratford and New Hampshire. They're the subject of very compelling class actions. Um, we can provide, I can provide sites for follow-up if people want to look into them. They're all on the Federal Defender website, accessible to uh, Federal Defender and CJA Council. Some of those class actions have resulted in TROs with the facilities being required to identify medically vulnerable prisoners um, and being required to give them expedited consideration for home confinement. But all of those orders are recent, so we don't know necessarily. Um, and a lot of that information about medically vulnerable prisoners is not publicly available. So um, it's going to be difficult to follow up on whether or not these people are actually being considered for home confinement on an expedited basis and whether or not there's any follow through after they've been identified as uh, medically vulnerable. There are expert declarations in the um, in several of the suits, including the one uh, in MDC Brooklyn that was filed by the Federal Defender's Office. Um, especially those who have toured the facilities, I think, are ones that are very important because they provide an inside, um, unbiased, uh, objective view that we can't get from our anecdotal, you know, conversations with clients. Dr. Ventners, for example, whose uh, two expert reports uh, after his tour of the MDC Brooklyn facility outlined a number of very, very concerning things about what's happening in Brooklyn and the ability of the BOP to manage the crisis that is rapidly unfolding there, specifically their ability to identify, treat, and triage COVID-19 cases. So to the extent that we have an inside view from, a, from an objective party, those kinds of expert declarations that have been filed in the class actions give us that. Um, Wyatt, for example, that I think Zach mentioned, you know, we are getting reports both from the marshals and through litigation in Rhode Island uh, where the facilities are required to provide status reports. Um, locally, Plymouth and Dedham and uh, the DOC where our clients are detained are also required to provide status reports through the SJC litigation. Um, and we generally get the number of inmates who have been tested those who have tested positive, those who have tested negative, and those who have um, recovered. But there's no general order to test everyone. There's not even an order to test people who are symptomatic. There's not a general order to test people who have encountered people who have been symptomatic. So everything that you and I and everyone else would do to protect ourselves, it's just not available uh, or to diagnose ourselves. There's also difficulty in getting information from the BOP by way of clients' medical records. Uh, it's, it varies from facility to facility. In some cases, the government is getting records before we get them after filing a compassionate release motion. Um, and it's even difficulty contacting case managers to say, can I get a copy of the 
denial letter that the warden gave to the client for compassionate release. So it's, it's making things a lot harder for us when we don't know what's going on in the facilities and we're, we're having a um, difficulty with that respect. And I want to touch on one thing that Zach said about facilities where there haven't, there hasn't been an outbreak. Um, I don't know that that's necessarily, and I don't think that he's suggesting it, that that's wholly dispositive of whether or not there's a viable release claim here because there have been many com compassionate release petitions that have been granted where there's no cases at a particular facility, um, but where there have been, for example, expert declarations, let's say at the women's camp in Danbury, which suggests that the efforts made by the BOP are insufficient to protect people, even if there are no documented cases yet. Um, and I don't know, and I I'd be happy to receive this information if anybody does know, but I don't know that there's been a single BOP initiated compassionate release grant since this pandemic. I think all of the grants that I've seen so far are coming from either the filing of a compassionate release motion, an allowance by a judge or an agreement by the US Attorney's Office. But to the extent that the BOP is meaningfully changing their criteria for compassionate release, I don't think they're doing it because most of the denial- Maybe that's not accurate. Okay, well that's that's great to know. They're planning their their plan is to reduce their overall population um, by several several thousand inmates, and they're and they are they are granting these. Uh, they, you wouldn't see them in court if they're just releasing. Of course, people. of course. But we're also assisting people in in making the requests to the BOP before we litigate because that deals with the exhaustion requirement. Right. Um. And every single case that I've seen, at least that's come through our office. Um, or has been referred to our office, has been denied by the BOP, not citing any COVID-19 concerns, not even su suggesting that that's a factor. And you're totally right. I wouldn't know about those that have been granted because they wouldn't come to our office. Um, so if there are BOP-initiated grants of compassionate release, that would be great to know because I, I, I don't know of any. Um, and to the extent that the BOP is engaging in um, uh, an eventual reduction of their prison population, that is, that is a hopeful thing because decarceration is probably our best bet at preventing larger outbreaks of this pandemic. Now the CARES Act and the Bar Memo, it, it's been confusing for not just clients, but also for us. You know, anecdotally, we had a number of clients who were approved for home confinement in April, were put into quarantine, and then were pulled back into the BOP when it appeared that the calculus or the guidance had changed with respect to how much of their sentence they had to have served. Um, so I, I, we maybe just don't have the data yet to, for me at least, to make an assessment of how the BOP is managing um, referrals to home confinement. And the goal might be overall um, reduction of the prison population. But without the data before me, it's hard to say kind of how that's going to go um, and how we can evaluate that. Thank you, Sandy. That's all very informative and I think as a practice tip just for those on the phone to know that there's a lot of information available on the Federal, federal Public Defender's website um, is helpful and to keep an eye on the progress of those class actions. One thing you mentioned was administrative exhaustion and I don't want to assume sort of that we're, we're all on the same level in terms of just the actual process and the factors. So could, so could you dig in a little bit from a legal perspective for us? So focusing first on pretrial release and then compassionate release. 
what factors would I, as a defense attorney, have to prove to the court in order to get a grant of release? Um, and how does administrative exhaustion fit in? So I'll touch on compassionate release and I'll leave pretrial to Seth and to, to Greg. Sure. But for compassionate release, generally speaking, um, you have to, in order to establish eligibility, you have to present some form of extraordinary and compelling circumstances, some of which Zach touched on, which are, you know, the, the CDC recognized risk factors, significant medical conditions, which, which put you at risk in the age of COVID-19, not necessarily just the terminal illness that had been um, defined by early compassionate release cases or pre-First Step Act cases. But the extraordinary and compelling circumstances is one criteria. Um, a demonstration that a reduction of, of sentence is appropriate under the 3553A factors that is consistent with the applicable policy statement, that you have a release plan, which I'll talk about later, and that you've exhausted your administrative remedies. And the way that we've been seeing that being done is um, clients either have to write directly to the warden seeking compassionate release, and 30 days then have to lapse from that request um, to, to await a response from the warden before the client can seek relief in court. And that's a novel process that was created by the First Step Act, which effectively removed the BOP as the guardian or the gatekeeper of, of compassionate release requests and allowed clients to file directly for compassionate release in court. Um, if clients are, are seeking compassionate release in court prior to the lapse of 30 days or prior to receiving uh, a warden response, um, the U.S. Attorney's Office has generally, generally, I should say, opposed um, compassionate release on exhaustion grounds. But there have been cases where a warden's letter denying it will come in 10 days after receipt of the denial, and then exhaustion may not be raised as, as uh, an opposition point. But I think it's, that at least is, is um, it's just different across different cases. So the exhaustion requirement is that 30 days have to lapse from the receipt of the compassionate release request from the warden, or the full administrative uh, remedies have to be exhausted. But really what we're seeing is the 30-day time period. Now that can be waived in, in certain circumstances if waiting for the full exhaustion of administrative remedies or the 30 days would be futile if the client is incredibly ill, if the client's at increased risk, um, there have been some courts that have found that the exhaustion, or some judges, I should say, Talwani and Young in this district, who have found that the exhaustion requirement is non-jurisdictional um, and that they can, and that it can also be waived in any event. Um, I don't know if Zach wants to touch more on that from the USAO perspective, but at least that's what we've seen. Yeah, I agree with all that, Sandy. I agree. I just, I do one the one other, you made one other point about the conditions in the prison earlier, um, we that would not actually, if if our view was assume sort of nonviolent offender or non-threat to public safety offender with, for example, kid, you know, chronic kidney disease such that he or she is being treated for kidney dialysis, that would certainly rise to the level of extraordinary for us, irrespective of whether there was an outbreak in the prison. That, that, um, so that, that, that's, not, that's not a requirement for us internally to agree. And, and I just say that so that people aren't discouraged from saying, oh, your client's at, you know, Moshannon Valley and there are no cases there. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't file if your client has other extraordinary compelling circumstances.
And Sandy, just in terms of advice for practitioners, um, what arguments have you found to be most successful in terms of the cases that you're bringing and the motions that you're bringing? Um, in the, I, I've, had a, I've had cases where the U.S. Attorney's Office has agreed to compassionate release and then cases that I'm litigating now where you know it's ultimately going to be the decision for the district judge. Um, I think what has been most compelling from our perspective is the client's specific medical conditions, um, either advanced age or particular risk factors. Um, also, generally, how much time the client has served is, a, is I think, a, um, a notable piece. If the client has served, um, if their release date is this year or next year and they've served a great bulk of their sentence, if they have a compelling release plan, I think all those are factors that that are persuasive in this piece. Um, the other thing I'd say is that the clients who are um, seeking compassionate release, there is a protocol that was imposed by the U.S. District Court Probation Department where um, attorneys are instructed to reach out to Michelle Robertson, Michelle Roberts, I should say, in the probation department with specific information regarding release plans. And they'll assign probation officers to investigate release plans and they've been doing home inspections by Zoom. Um, I had one where I referred a case to the probation department to conduct investigation of a release plan and it was done that same day. So there is, I think, good turnaround on these and, and there, I think clients, I think uh, attorneys are having uh, the an easier time dealing with probation in, in in that where whereas in the normal world where we have to leave our homes and go to inspections it may take longer um but I, I think all of those all of those issues are are where you find the most persuasive pieces for compassionate release claims great thank you you also before we move on to to greg and seth and get some of their experience you mentioned in our in our prep, an interesting um, legal issue with respect to whether some clients may have actually, in plea agreements, potentially waived their right or ability to make these um, requests. Can you talk a little bit about that? Certainly, and and this may be a good point for Zach to jump into if we aren't ambushing him on this, um, but. There, there have been a couple of cases that I'm aware of where the impact of plea waivers, of appellate waivers and plea agreements on claims of compassionate release have been raised. Um, some of the standard appellate waivers that we've seen cite to 3582 generally, where a client will agree in a plea agreement not to challenge um, his conviction or sentence. And I think the open question, or at least the argument from defense counsel, is that those waivers were intended to address retroactive guideline amendments. Um, maybe they predated the First Step Act. Maybe there can be other arguments as to why that wouldn't apply to claims of compassionate release specifically. Okay. Um, but I know it has been raised. So I think I'd, if, if Zach has a, an opinion on it. Yeah, we're not taking, um, unless there is a very, unless there are very um, specific circumstances in which there was a compassionate release waiver in a written document. Um, we are not as an office taking the position that plea agreements with general appellate waivers bar compassionate release requests procedurally. And nor do I anticipate we will, as long as I'm here, be taking that position. Okay. 
That may just be a fear on the defense bar's part. No, I, I, I've been asked the question several times by several AUSAs and um, in each instance, we have not, there's, there's one, there's, this is one completely bizarre, very unique sort of, which would never recur case. Beyond that case, no. Um, we are not arguing these are procedurally stopped in any way. We are not seeking in forward-looking plea agreements to add compassionate release waivers to them. Um, we can debate, I guess, at a different, another forum whether or not that would be good public policy, but we're not doing it. Great. Great. Thank you. Good. Look, look at that. <laughs> Getting information. <laughs> um, so, Greg, let's turn to you. Tell us a little bit about maybe a case that you've had recently related to pre-trial release so we can discuss the factors and, and how it played out for, for your particular client. Sure, uh, sort of take a step back sort of more broadly just to sort of remind everyone why you know, we're here is that there's obviously a big philosophical difference between pre-trial release and compassionate release. When you're dealing with the compassionate release community, you are dealing with people who have been adjudicated uh, by someone or someone somewhere to have committed a crime, they've had their day in court, or they've pleaded guilty, and now, uh, for obvious reasons and completely understandable reasons, they're looking for sort of a way out of prison early. Uh, on the pretrial release side, you're dealing with a very different you know, class of people. You're dealing with people who have not been adjudicated guilty of any crime. Uh, and it's an interesting philosophical point of, uh, when someone has not even been found guilty, how does that factor into converting what is detention for the purpose of preventing danger to the community or risk of flight, adding in the increased possibility of exposure to a potentially fatal uh, infection such as COVID? Like, what does, what does that mean? And, you know, look, when this all started, there were two places and two types of uh, institutions that were shut down extremely quickly. One is dormitories, college dormitories, and the other were cruise ships. And really, I mean, a prison is like a horrible hybrid of a docked cruise ship that you can't get off of and you're stuck in. And the potential for danger in it is quite high. Uh, and to give the government and the, uh, the Bureau of Prisons its due, uh, it's obvious that the U.S. Attorney's Office, the Federal Defenders, private practice, and the Bureau of Prisons are not set up to handle this. Our entire society has proven exhaustively over the last few months that we were not set up to handle this. And I think all things considered, uh, both the government and the Bureau of Prisons are doing a really good job. Uh, and that's why on the pretrial release side now, we're not talking about the low hanging fruit. Exact laid out a bunch of factors uh, at the beginning of this webinar where he and Miriam sort of sat down and came up with like, here's sort of an agreed upon matrix of people where given these conditions and given these circumstances may not even make sense for the government to even ask in the first place, they'd be detained. A group of people who under normal circumstances, it would almost always be the case they would ask to be detained. So what you're dealing with now, uh, by this point in May, uh, you are definitely dealing with people who it is not as obvious uh, that they no longer pose a risk of flight or they no longer pose a, risk, a danger to the community due to the circumstances. I think in terms of practical tips, the very first thing to do if you represent, uh, if you're, represent somebody is obviously you should look to see whether or not, is this person being detained because they agreed to be detained? Because you know this started with an indictment in March of last year 
or in December of last year. And under normal circumstances, you're like, well, there's no real chance that so-and-so is going to get out because they've been indicted on a RICO conspiracy, for example. No substantive counts, but indicted on a RICO conspiracy. There's very little chance that a court is going to let so-and-so out uh, under those circumstances. You need to revisit that. That's your first obligation. And believe me, if you haven't thought about revisiting it, your client's going to remind you to revisit it because it's very hard to explain to someone who's sitting in Wyatt or in Plymouth uh, that there's nothing that can be done for them when all they're hearing through the grapevine and their friends and other people's attorneys and the news is that people are being released when they wouldn't otherwise be released from Wyatt or Plymouth. So you have to look at that first, because if you're looking at that, and in fact, you or the previous attorney agreed to detention, then you're just dealing in the first instance with the normal detention hearing, and you don't bear the burden on that at all. And, and, and having gone through some of these dockets, that's a lot of the cases. And that was Tony Full and I recently represented an individual for whom that was the case. We had taken over from a previous attorney. Uh, our client, this is all public record, of course. Our client has been indicted on a one charge legal conspiracy, no substantive counts. And you know, we had been thinking about whether or not uh, to move for his release when one of the co-defendants moved for a release and was in fact released with the assent of the government. And the co-defendant who had been released was also charged with the one count RICO and had also been charged with a substantive uh, armed robbery. So we're like, well, this is great. I mean, we compared the two individuals, went through the indictment, went through the affidavit, compared the two individuals. I'm like, well, this is amazing. There's really no daylight between our guy and this guy who's been released. And we weren't, you know, Tony's a smart guy. I'm a relatively smart guy. We weren't the only people in that case who had that idea. And multiple other defense counsel in that case also moved for release. Uh, so far, other than the initial person uh, who got the assent of the government, none of the rest of us have been released. And I think there's, there's, some, there's an obvious reason and there's some less obvious reasons. What became the obvious reason uh, is that after Tony and I had our video detention hearing uh, in front of Judge Kelly, uh, the next day uh, there was a motion to place trans portions of the transcript of the first defendant who moved for detention release to place portions of that transcript under seal. And that sort of put a bell off over our heads. It's like, oh, okay, now, now we understand why the government assented to release on that. And for everybody else, the government has understandably taking a strong position that we go conspiracy with or without a substantive count is a crime of violence. And as Zach indicated earlier, the office is taking the position that they're certainly not going to agree, uh, generally speaking, to release on a crime of violence. We can put in the corner why they agreed to it for one individual. We can probably all figure that out. Uh, but it's worth taking a shot because I can send anyone who wants it on this call a string site as long as my, as long as my arm of individuals who have been charged with drug trafficking, drug conspiracy, with sort of less violent factual predicates who have been let out over the last two months on pretrial release over the objections of the government. I mean, obviously the best case scenario is someone who agreed to detention, the government still bears the burden, it's either a white collar crime or there's not a whiff of violence at all to the fact pattern. Uh, once you have a whiff of violence, uh, even if it's just, even if it's not a charge, even if it's just sort of related facts, it's going to be much harder to convince a judge uh, that a person should be released unless you have a plus factor of you can prove that your individual actually has some kind of health risk 
that makes him or her uh, much more of a member of a vulnerable community. And, you know, some people, uh, you know, look, if you can point to medical records that show that your client actually has asthma, if you can point to medical records that your client has cardiovascular conditions, that's great. I would caution anybody who is going to use medical records from the BOP. Uh, once you have access to them, you should go through them very carefully and make a very considered decision whether you will or not, will or not use those medical records because there's certainly information in those medical records uh, that are not related to your client's medical condition that could be used against you know, him or her uh, if you end up relying on those medical records to try to get someone out. So I guess my big takeaway here is on pretrial release, uh, as is, if you're a defense counsel, you have an obligation for zealous advocacy. And even if you think it's a reach to go for release on crime of violence, uh, certainly if there was originally an agreement that the person be detained and not an actual detention hearing, I think you owe it to your client to make the attempt. Right. So this is a, a practical question related to flight risk. So you know, where are they going to go? That doesn't have. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, no, there it's are flights <laughs> out there, but a, a lot of countries question. are shut down, and it seems like it would be more difficult to slip through an airport at a time in a time like that. We're in the times that we're facing. So, have you seen or considered making those types of arguments? Like, I think we're all making those arguments when we are doing the, the detention hearing, and obviously, at a certain level, it seems glib, but it's obviously very true. I think at that point in time, you end up getting in a tug of war with the government over the seriousness of the offense and what the term of years might be at the end of the day. Uh, because, you know, with other states, you know, Massachusetts is beginning the opening up process, but with other states having already begun that process and some states having thrown the doors wide open, uh, it may be, especially now, a little more tempting for someone to leave Massachusetts for New Hampshire or even Rhode Island or to get all the way down to Florida or Texas. So it's certainly a point you have to make and it's a point well worth making, uh, but it's not, gonna, it's not gonna win the day. You obviously really need some family network that is going to step up for your client to say, you know, Joe or Sammy can stay with me and these are the hours, this is my working hours, someone can be at the house, like we have Wi-Fi, there'll be somebody here at all times, like that helps enormously. You know, one interesting wrinkle, which is a little frustrating to deal with, uh, it's kind of a damned if you do and damned if you don't situation where obviously the various prisons are making, um, you know, very detailed arguments as to why they're safe and why someone is better off, you know, staying in prison than necessarily being released into the general population of society as opposed to general population of a prison. But then at the same time, you hear an argument like, well, you know, if you release so-and-so, I mean, he's been in riots. And then what, you expect our probation officer to go visit this guy? and put our probation officer at risk. It's like, well, come on, let's have a little sort of fairness and equity in the argument. Like, if you're telling me that why it's not so bad, don't turn around and then say that no one's gonna be willing to visit, you know, my client when he's on the outside. Right. It's, I mean, it's sort of, like you said, looking at the philosophical arguments, some of this is sort of just about humanity, right? And, and looking at one person differently than you look at someone else's situation. And um, I don't think anyone participating is suggesting that, you know, this, this should be part of part of one's punishment, certainly right. not contemplated, right, that you would have face a higher risk um, of a deadly virus. And 
I guess to that point, and maybe this is more appropriate for, for Seth, um, related to compassionate release, are we seeing people um, claiming that being in prison at this time is cruel and unusual punishment? Yeah, we, we are seeing that. Um, and we've seen that particularly with respect to some of the civil lawsuits um, that have the, the habeas petitions um, and uh, class action lawsuits uh, that have taken place around the country. But um, by far and away, the majority of inmates uh, who have been released or have been successful in, in getting released um, have been through the compassionate release mechanism. Okay. Well, tell us a little bit about your experience in advocating for clients with respect to compassionate release. Sure. I, I, I wanted to um, sort of just touch on some of the um, kind of unique aspects of representing white collar defendants in, uh, in these kinds of motions. Um, and, um, you know, one is in terms of developing a release plan. Um, it, it's, it can be somewhat easier for uh, some white collar defendants who are of means to develop a release plan than um, other defendants uh, who do not have the same types of financial resources or family support um, that some of our clients do. And um, the judges are aware of that and um, have started questioning whether um, that may lead to sentencing disparities um, where you're treating white collar defendants uh, in a way um, uh, that you wouldn't be treating um, non-white collar defendants. So if you say, for example, if you argue to the judge that my client's going to um, go to his 500 acre um, retreat in the Poconos uh, where he can self-quarantine and not be around anybody, um, I, I, in my limited experience so far over the past two months of, of doing these, um, uh, judges won't be particularly, um, find, find that kind of argument particularly compelling where um, there are a number of non-white collar defendants who um, whose families are making extraordinary sacrifices, dedicating a particular bedroom and saying that they can come and live, at, live uh, in home confinement for a significant period of time. Um, you know, the, the other issue that I've been confronting is for, um, for inmates who have um, a significant portion of their sentence less, left to serve. Um, some judges, including Judge Woodlock here, and I've talked to Sandy about this recently, um, have, have expressed some frustration about the inflexibility of the compassionate release statute. So, you know, judges under federal law do not have the authority to grant uh, a furlough or to suspend a sentence. They used to, but they no longer do. Um, but that's what some judges have expressed the desire really to do, is that they've they, um, sentenced the defendant to a well-considered sentence. Um, they don't think that that sentence should be disturbed under normal circumstances. and um, would like to see the defendant go back to prison after this COVID-19 crisis abates. Um, but the, the compassionate release statute as written doesn't give them that flexibility. And so the, really the a judge's only two options um, if they're going to grant compassionate release is to replace their term of incarceration with a term of probation or a term of supervised release um, that does not exceed the unserved portion of their sentence. And so in some, for some uh, inmates, for some, in some cases, that may result in them being under supervision for less time than they have remaining um, uh, on their original sentence. So, for example, if they um, were sentenced to supervised release following an incarceratory sentence, um, if the judge, in some cases, depending on the math, if the judge sentences them to the remainder of their incarceratory sentence under probation, um, they can't their their um, their supervised release um, will um, 
uh, will be vacated. They're not going to serve supervised release after probation because that, that would not be a lawful sentence. Or the judge could sentence to supervisory release for a period of time, but there are statutory maxes um, where the total period of supervised release might not equal the unserved portion of their sentence. So that's, that's something that judges um, are, have been wrestling with. Um, I'm waiting for a decision in my case with Judge Woodlock uh, after three days of hearings last week. Um, and uh, I don't know how, he's, how this is gonna come out, but this is a, an issue that he's really been wrestling with. Yeah, definitely one to watch and ties back to something, I believe it was Greg who said, you know, that the amount of time you served matters, right? Because if you've served a substantial amount of your sentence, you may be more likely to get the release, which I guess is sort of a practical consideration, but the, the lack of the ability to grant a furlough, put some legal framework around why that may be the, the case. Right, and the, and the more of your sentence you've served, um, the better your chance of, of uh, gaining compassionate release by petitioning the, the BOP warden, um, unless your name is Paul Manafort, and then, uh, then, then you get out uh, pretty quickly. But other than that, um, you know, some of the wardens are, have, have um, based on the bar memo and, and other BOP guidance, um, there is there is a calculus as to when wardens can grant compassion release. So do you have any practice tips for, for those on the line who may be either deciding whether to move for compassionate release or in the midst of advocating? Uh, one, one, um, one tip I would give is, uh, to Sandy's point, um, petition the warden uh, as soon as possible before you've written your brief, before you've really had a chance to dig into the facts. It's a, in my case, in my cases, it's been uh, a relatively short and simple letter of a page or page and a half. Um, the, the wardens almost reflexively now, in my experience, have been denying um, those requests, but at least it gets the clock ticking. Um, and in the meantime, you can write your compassionate release motion and gather the facts, gather the medical records and, and such, but it's helpful to have that clock ticking in the background um, so that after 30 days elapses, it becomes ripe uh, for the courts. And the, the government has taken the position, which I think is correct, that um, either 30 days has to elapse since the, the um, since the warden receives the compassionate re release request or the defendant has to exhaust administrative remedies. So um, that 30 days is, is key. Um, you know, in, in terms of uh, another practice tip, I would say each institution and each client is, is very different, but as is the case in all criminal defense, I think this really comes down to telling stories, telling a good compelling story to the judge. Um, you know, I think as the judges hear more of these, there may be a human tendency to start treating them sort of formulaically. I mean, in theory, you could come up with a chart with the defendant's age and various medical uh, problems and um, be able to sort of put yeses and nos in various boxes the more of these cases you hear. And, and we want, as defense attorneys, we need to push back on that temptation. And I found that by speaking with my clients, putting a real human face on these cases um, is really important. Um, for example, it's important to let the judge know how many masks uh, your client has received and what kind and how often they get them and how often they get a bar of soap and the size of that soap and how often they get a roll of toilet paper um, and how many people they're housed with both in their cell and in their unit um, and to what extent people in that unit are wearing masks, whether they've received gloves, whether the staff members have been um, wearing masks or gloves, all of those things about 
your client's particular circumstances, I think really matter and, and make your case much more compelling. Oh, thank you. That's, that's very powerful. And much of what we do around advocacy is about telling a story. Those particular details, I think, give, give great practical tips for those on the line and those who might be filing a motion. Um, a follow-up question to that, Seth, is it easy to get that information? Is it easy to communicate with your clients who are currently serving time? So it's, it's relatively easier in the cases uh, where there have been class actions filed. So for, um, I, I uh, recommend that you reach out to the Federal Defender's Office if you don't know. Um, Sandy and others there may be able to tell you. Um, just by searching um, court dockets or Law 360, you can find those cases. And in those cases, there are affidavits often that contain some information. But I don't think it's a replacement for speaking with your client. Um, and really getting your client's particular experience. Um, and in some cases that may be uh, confirmed by the expert reports in a class action, in some cases not. Um, I found it very difficult to communicate with my clients under these circumstances because the BOP is on lockdown. And right. in, my, in my client's situations, they've been allowed out of their cells um, three times a week for a half an hour or an hour. And during that time, they have to shower, uh, they have to make their phone calls, they have to, um, uh, do attend to their emails. And so it's difficult to get information. Um, the BOP has been scheduling legal calls. Um, and you, you know, you have to make compelling, a compelling case as to why your need for a call is, is urgent. Um, the BOP usually requires 48 hours notice to, to get a call scheduled, but they're doing those calls. Um, and I found them very useful. Great. Thank you. Very helpful, practical tips. So I don't know where the time goes, but it's actually just after three o'clock and we were scheduled for an hour. I'm gonna ask each of the um, webinar panelists to, to think of a final imparting thought um, to close out the webinar. And I also will ask the participants um, on the line to feel free to, to write in with any quick questions that you may have. Um, even if we don't answer them immediately, we do have the um, procedural mechanism to follow up with you individually with answers through the BBA, and we'd be more than happy to do that. Um, so give a second to see if any questions come in and to let you all think this has been a very um, thought-provoking -provo discussion on pretrial and compassionate release and I think just really a helpful appetizer, frankly, right? Or a taste for someone stepping into this space. An hour certainly isn't long enough, but I personally haven't brought any of these motions. And some of the things that I take away are that, you know, one, powerful to know that the U.S. Attorney's Office and the federal public defenders are working together on these issues um, and finding common ground, even if it is in 20% of the cases. I think that's um, impactful and good to know that that's happening. And also from the defense perspective, uh, good to know that the federal public defenders is there, that you are there, Sandy, that you and your office are there as a resource through the website and otherwise collecting data um, that is frankly difficult uh, to get a hold of. And, and Greg and Seth, I think the stories um, and hearing how you've walked through this process during this time and working from home is, is also very powerful. So seeing no questions, I think I'll just you know go around the clock and, and ask for your final thoughts. 
there's also something very important I have to say. When Greg said, um, Tony Fuller is a smart guy, I laughed. <laughs> and that is not because I don't believe he's a smart guy, but for those of you who don't know, um, Tony is my co-chair on the white collar section this year and has been working closely on all these issues. So shout out and much respect to Tony. <laughs> um, and turning now to Sandy. Sandy, what, what are your parting thoughts? I would just urge people to go to the website um, or to contact me directly for materials. We are tracking compassionate release cases specifically um, by facility, by court, by judge, um, and we want to be able to assist those who are filing. And just on a personal note, um, we are getting inundated with requests for compassionate release from pro se defendants, from counsel who had previously represented defendants and want to refer them to our offices. Um, so it's, it is important to prioritize and to identify uh, for yourselves what you think would be grounds for eligibility. A lot of that is going to be guided by 3582. It's worth reaching out to the U.S. Attorney and to the AUSA in the case, getting their take on it before you file, and managing clients' expectations um, and taking care of yourselves in this process because we're only really trying to do the best that we possibly can in a pandemic. Thank you. Thank you, Sandy, for your participation and your work in this area. Um, Zach? Thanks, Giselle. Uh, two things I think I would leave with. The first is, um, and this could be particularly relevant to white collar defendants. I'm not going to refer to a, a, what case this was, but keep in mind that even if we agree to compassionate release um, or a particular uh, inmate uh, is granted under BOP's home confinement program, compassionate release, um, there's going to be a 14-day quarantine period before they're released from the facility for a, a white-collar defendant who's at a camp. Um, in some instances, that could land him in a maximum security shoe, solitary confinement. Um, that's not anybody's intent, but the quarantine uh, the 14-day quarantine on the way out is is non-negotiable and non-movable. So I would just say that's something to keep in mind. Um, also, while this hasn't happened yet in one of the regional facilities uh, that we've talked about today, uh, Plymouth, Wyatt, um, Dedham, any of the Essex, any of the places that the marshals around here use, um, there are uh, now several instances in which inmates have um, knowingly infected themselves with COVID um, from other inmates uh, in order to get release. And obviously that is something that um, we, we, will, we will be paying attention to. There was, a, there was a jail in Los Angeles where that just happened recently. So um, just, just something that you should be mindful of. Right. Well, that's quite a risk. Um. <laughs> Greg. <laughs> yeah, I'm definitely not going to recommend anyone do that. Uh, <laughs> I think I would just recommend to defense counsel who have uh, individuals white collar or blue collar who are in free, who are being detained free trial. Just expand your concept of what is possible. I think uh, detention hearings, bail in the federal system, especially, is you know part of the law that often doesn't really rivet our attention. It's often whether you're a prosecutor or defense counsel, uh, it often can seem obvious whether or not this is a case where someone can or cannot be released uh, pretrial. 
And while that was true three months ago, it's certainly not as true and maybe not true at all now. So don't judge based on, you know, years of experience, like what does or does not get someone out before trial. It really is, uh, it really is worth, in, worth expanding your concept of what is possible and your ability to try to get someone out before they actually stand trial. Right. And I, to your point of it's not three months ago, I mean, this is a changing landscape day by day. Yeah. So this webinar is being recorded, but who knows how relevant it is two weeks, one month from now, hopefully still relevant. <laughs> but really, we really are in unprecedented times. No, absolutely. Seth. Thank you. Seth? That's a great segue into my, uh, my final point, which is um, that time is of the essence. I think we're really in a unique moment here where um, uh, uh, both the, the prison, the number of cases in the prison system have been on the rise. I mean, the latest statistics that I've seen are about 3% of the federal prison uh, inmates have tested positive at this point. Um, but to Sandy's point, many inmates are not being tested. Um, but as time goes on, um, both the number of inmates who have already had this virus will increase, in which case um, your argument for compassionate release um, doesn't have as much weight because they may have had it and, and may now be immune. Um, and also, as longer that this goes on, the more likelihood that there will be that, um, that will have effective treatment uh, and potentially a vaccine. And so I think we're really in a unique moment for the next few months, perhaps, um, where compassionate release is a real possibility for many clients. Thank you. Thank you so much, Seth, Greg, Seth. Thank you all. Um, this is a very obviously serious issue for the community at large, and we appreciate your participation in this webinar and your continued work to ensure the safety of both those in prison, but for all of us. Um, very uncertain times and just very helpful to have these conversations. So thank you again. Take care and stay safe. Thanks, Giselle. Thank you all.